Welcome to A Different Way of Traveling. This is a podcast where we discuss travel for persons with disabilities and special needs in South Africa and beyond with our host, Lois Strachan. Join us as we share inspiring stories of people who travel, exciting accessible travel experiences, and showcase service providers who will accommodate those with special needs. And now, on with the show. Hi there, and thanks for joining us on today's episode of A Different Way of Travelling, a podcast on accessible travel hosted by Accessible South Africa. I'm your host, Lois Strachan. Today marks the second anniversary of our podcast, two years since we released our first episode. We're doing something a little bit different today. Rather than an interview, a more formal kind of interview, I'm having a conversation with a colleague and friend, Jeremy Opperman. Jeremy is a disability inclusion consultant, and we talk a little bit about that and how it impacts the travel and tourism industries in the following conversation. Hope you enjoy it. Jeremy, how are you today? Lois, it's great to be here and thank you. I'm very, very well. And yourself? I'm very well. And thanks so much for chatting to me today. I think we're doing something a little bit different from what I normally would do on the podcast because we're not doing a formal interview. You and I are just going to be chatting about our various experiences of travel. And I guess, however, that the first thing that I should do is just to ask you to give us a little bit of your story, a little bit of your background. So thank you, Lois. Um, yes, so, well, I, um, I'm, I'm visually impaired. Oh, well, I'm, I'm, I suppose I'm closer to blind than visually impaired. I have RP, retinitis pigmentosa. Um, I got it as a very young uh, child, so I've had it all my life. And in when one in my sort of 30s, uh, my already poor vision started sort of slowly disintegrating. Um, and now that I'm in my middle, late 50s, um, I'm, I'm very close to the end game now. So I've seen the full spectrum, uh, except for perfect vision. I've never had that. But I've seen a great deal of of uh, the the spectrum of visual impairment going through to almost total blindness um and um yes i'm a i'm a professional man i i'm a disability integration consultant uh, by practice uh, have been so for the last 20 years and before that i was very involved in marketing and sales of human resource products um and I have never really, certainly before my uh, I started my own business 20 years ago, um, the visual impairment wasn't an issue to, to necessarily color my experience in my workplace. I was very, um, I was very determined to not necessarily make that an issue. It was early days in the 90s when one didn't make a fuss about those sorts of things, and you kept your head low and you did the work you possibly could. Um, and so uh, my, my visual impairment is something that hasn't necessarily colored my work experience uh, deliberately. But when I started my own job or my own, my own company, uh, obviously my visual impairment became something of a, of a calling card. It was obvious if I met you that I couldn't see. Um, and so for the first time, I was sort of, paying more attention to it in the context of other people's experiences, both other persons with disabilities and able-bodied sighted people. And so I started looking at life with a, with a greater perspective to examine what they did and had and what I had opportunities to do and have. So I'm sorry, that's a convoluted introduction. But, uh, <laughs> not, a, not at all. I'm, I'm just intrigued by the term disability integration. And I know that's not really what we're talking about today, but what does disability integration mean? Well, 
Very good question. Because what it ultimately means is that the opposite applies. We have anything but disability integration in our traditional um, societies. Um, certainly in this country, we have almost no disability integration. What that implies is where you have an effortless diversity. Now, we, we, we certainly are getting, have, have gone down that road very well from a racial point of view, um, in, in the broad sense, where there is almost effortless diversity in business, in education. There are obviously patches where more needs to be done, but there's, there's yeah. no question. You got me? And so when it yeah, comes to disability, much. there is not that effortless integration diversity at all which can be borne out by the fact that we don't see people um, with disabilities as much um, in our workplaces, in our education, um, etc. And in our tourism experiences? Well, that's a very good question. That's even a better question. <laughs> because... <laughs> I think I think that's really an, a, an interesting point, and it's it's something that I that I looked at very closely a long time ago. Was what are the opportunities of of disabled tourism coming into our obviously beautiful country, um, where we are famous for tourism, where we are, um, you know, we have the most we have resources uh, galore to be able to cater for every breed of tourist and how much effort has there been in including tourists with disabilities and um, so that sort of integration um, uh, is, is starkly starkly or lack of integration is starkly made when we uh, when we uh, you know when we sorry I'm distracted by a cat um, <laughs> not your guide dog <laughs> no 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 not my guide dog he's behaving himself but the cat suddenly wants to join the zoom meeting I think it's <laughs> so so yeah that's the that's the that's, in tourism absolutely there's huge gaps and obvious opportunities and and to their credit there are organizations who have started looking at that um, and and thank heavens for that but it's still not ubiquitous so it's, it's still rare to, for conventional tourist destinations um, to think completely from an access point of view. Um, you know, it, it's interesting to, that you say that. I mean, obviously, every it, it, it's not, I suppose, I can, if I can use the term, it's not systematic. So it doesn't happen automatically. Yeah. But I think there are some sites that are doing what they can. And just as an example, the Cape Wheel, which is a big, um, via, uh, how, would, how would one describe the, the, it's a bit like the O2 wheel in, in London, where you get in a little compartment and it takes you up into the air and you can see the most amazing things. Now, I had no problem going on the Cape Wheel with my guide dog. They were a little startled that my guide dog, I even considered bringing Fiji with me, but they were quite comfortable with me taking her with us eventually. But, you know, that sort of thing, what would have made that really amazing would have been to have some sort of audio described track letting me know what people were seeing as you go through that ride. So that, you know, the access side was fine but that's only part of the story you see now and what, i'm just curious about some of your experiences in that type of thing what I are think, we talking about here and i yeah and I'll, I'll happily speak about that but i think what what is very important to to pick up on what you've just said is that is that they were perfectly prepared for me to allow fiji on the wheel now yeah, well, that that implies that there was an individual there who was prepared to apply his or her mind to the problem. And that's terrific. Now, the other interesting thing about what you said is that we don't have a systemic approach. And, and that's the fact. We don't have a systemic approach. So what sadly happens too often, and this is by no means confined to this country, is that there is often a lack of systemic guideline or systemic regulation 
um, which would make the 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 opportunity um, flawless and seamless. And so, the, it, one has to rely on the initiative of people. And it, as long as those people are amenable, and those people are somewhat more um, approachable and are widely enough exposed to, to persons with disabilities, that might be a great thing. The trouble is, is that in certainly in this country, what we have is a huge problem where um, the, the concept of disability is still anathema to many people. Dis to people with disabilities being in any way involved in mainstream society. And so that to appeal to initiative is very dangerous when they have such poor exposure. So am I hearing you saying then that because people aren't aware of what we are capable of, despite our disabilities, that there is less inclusion? Absolutely. Less of a willingness to yeah. be open to inclusion? Indeed. I, I'm, I'm finding that interesting because... Yes, I hear that you, know, you, you say it's a lot of the issue is around how disability is viewed in the specific society that we're living in. And I don't think it's just a South African problem, but no. it also makes me think back to a, something that you've said in a previous conversation about your experience of the Tower of London in England which so sharply contrasted from mine. And maybe if we can share your story and then me, I'll share my story of what happened, because I think it is a very good example of how that plays out. Exactly. And in fact, I think that that bears out what I said about relying on individuals themselves. So you're, in your experience, you had a, and not that I had a bad experience. I, I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't hit by rudeness or anything like that, but there was, as far my, you know, I'm a history, I'm a history fan. I'm a, I'm a, I'm, I'm, I can't get enough of this stuff. And so, I was really keen to see and touch and, and experience and listen to as much as I possibly could and absorb in the short time I had. But I found very quickly that many of the displays were glassed in, and I had to rely on my. The person with me, I had a guide, a friend who was acting as a guide. Not that he was necessarily a guide in the tower. He was just, he was my he was my guy in London, and it was terrific. And he did his he really he worked his heart out to give me a, a terrific experience of audio description. Um, and what would have been great is, is is if I had found an individual to perhaps take a little bit of extra care in showing me stuff. Um, and so I had to approach a beef eater at some point because I was, I, as much as I was interested, you know, you can look at a suit of armor and have it described to you as a suit of armor that Henry VIII wore. Um, but without, and, and he tries hard, but if you can't feel it as a blind person, that's great. And I can picture it, but I'm, I need to be more tactile. And of course, there's a restriction on, on, on feeling many things except for the heavy, things that people can't damage, like big cannons and things. And so even some of them were restricted. So I went to a beef eater and I said, would you mind if I climbed over the ropes to just fondle the cannon, <laughs> uh, to coin a phrase? And um, he thought about it for a bit and he said, oh, okay, cool. And then, you know, and then he hovered around and, and he got into the game. But it, it took quite a lot of effort on my part to find someone to, to sort of do that. What it would have, now, let's hear your experience, because I think you had a slightly different experience. It did. Uh, we went into the Tower of London and someone approached us and said, can I guide you around? He was one of the guys who was working there. Yeah. Um, and he took us through, gave us a lot of exp explanation of what was happening. I can't remember how much I really got to touch of the display items, but what he did do was he took us into areas that weren't on the public, the public accessible galleries. Terrific. And took us into some of the rooms that were 
used as prison cells and where prisoners had um, scratched markings on the walls and things like that. And I was encouraged to touch those, which was a little bit too much history for me, I will admit. <laughs> <laughs> but I was offered the opportunity. And I think that that's very much the, the difference. Um, and it really depended on the fact that he happened to see my husband and I walking in, realized I was blind, watching, seeing my white cane and saying, let me offer her something a little bit. That's right. That you see, now make, I call that, there's a, there's a technical term, which I mean, it's my own term, but I call that applied diversity or applied integration, if you like. But because he's, he's practically applying something, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit like seeing somebody in distress or seeing somebody that you can, you, you look at them and it's like going to a restaurant and a waiter standing there and not assisting you or a shop person not assisting you. They just stand there, watch you being lost and, you know, mooching around rather than walking up to the can I help you? And when it comes to disability, that that is sadly not it's not sufficiently ubiquitous yet. Um, I suspect it will get better and better and better. It's unlikely to get worse. So this is not a bad news story. It's just some pointing out that we need more of that initiative. And what you experienced there was made special by that individual's imagination and, and ability to apply initiative. Um, I had a similar experience in Holland um, a year before the London trip where I, I was with uh, a relative of, of my wife uh, who's a military man or a retired military man and he took me to uh, a museum and being a military man he had authority and he handed over a special card which showed that he was a veteran and there, he immediately got free passage into the museum, including myself and my children. And then he went the extra mile and said, right, my friend is blind. How are you going to make this experience really special for him? And they jumped about because he was a, an important individual. And they provided me with some gloves and they said, touch anything you like. <laughs> See, so there, that had been inspired by an, a third party individual, not had he not been there, I suspect they wouldn't have been nearly as accommodating. Yeah. Which, which again, is, is interesting if I compare that to some of my experiences. I find museums are a bit hit and miss, often a lot more miss than hit. Mm -hmm. But, you know, one of my most, well, some of my most amazing experiences, I've, I found the, the museums in Warsaw, in Poland, yeah. are a lot more but they, they are by nature more interactive. And because they're more interactive, that immediately means that there is more ability for us as visually impaired tourists to engage tactilely by touch with the exhibits. And there's a lot of things that are still behind glass and documents and things like that that are, are not able to be touched. But at least there's more available. So that, that's the one experience that I found fascinating. And I found that pretty much through many of the museums that I went to in Poland. And I don't know if it's just a Polish thing, if it's more European, whether it's just that here in South Africa, we tend to still have fairly old school style museums. I don't know. Mm. I haven't actually been to many museums in South Africa since I was at school. But the, the other experience that I had was in Athens at the Athenian Archaeological Museum. Ah. Because I come from a background of ancient history and classical civilizations. Okay. And we were walking through the museum and Craig, my husband, was you know, just describing things to me. And he said, I don't see any signs saying do not touch. So let's approach one of these huge marble statues and let you feel it. And as I touched it, mm. a curator leapt towards us and said, please don't do that. And I thought, oh, that's it. I'm in trouble. Yeah. And she said, if you go back to the entrance desk and sign in, yeah. we have a tour particularly for people who are visually impaired. Oh, wow. And one of the curators at the museum 
took me round again to some public, some publicly accessible galleries and some that were not because they do have things that they put on show at times and at other times they close them off. And I was allowed to touch and feel 20 different statues, friezes. And we're talking artifacts from the 6th century BCE. I know. Hey? Wow. Wow. And, you know, it's it was an absolutely extraordinary experience because I never would have thought something like that would be possible. Don't you find don't you find when you're exposed to that kind of gesture that it's quite moving? You almost get a lump in your throat, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. And particularly for me with the background in history, this was I was seeing things that I had studied as a sighted person that I'd never realized that now that I'd lost my vision, that I would have a sense of their reality beyond through the spoken word. So having that sense, that ability to touch was absolutely unforgettable. Even though there was one little lion statue that I touched and I swear it felt just like my guide dog, which made me feel very homesick for a moment. <laughs> There's something wrong with that picture, though. If your guide dog feels like a little lion, then it makes me wonder. Um, <laughs> well, so, you've met Fiji. So. <laughs> uh, yes, absolutely. But now I, I, I had a very similar experience to that, where it, although it wasn't, I mean, I think that story is terrific in the sense of them saying we have a specific guide, or you know, we have a particular. Um, recognition of this need and somebody will show you and you can touch what you that's that is a super story that whereas the other stories we tend to find are more ad hoc guy approaches you with the initiative to do it or as happened to me in the national gallery i was with um we were hosting joel snyder uh, one of the fathers of audio description and i had the, the wonderful privilege of walking around with him for an entire day in cape town and we went to the national gallery and we went to the uh, the big synagogue, and we went to you know, a variety of places. But the National Gallery in particular, because we were trying to uh, educate the curators of the National Gallery towards the concept of audio description to be applied either in real time where somebody literally talks to you and describes the picture properly uh, or uh, electronically applying some sort of audio description tag to to some sort of artistic feature that you could press a button and hear it, or you could have a, a, a onboard uh, device. Anyway, so because the curators were inspired by this older gentleman who, who himself is, is very knowledgeable about art, they allowed me to do something which they would never normally have, and they let me play with the butcher boys. Um, I mean, play is a relative term. They, they let me feel and I spent literally an hour there's three of these things they are extraordinarily they're meant to be bizarre and and borderline hideous sculptures of man type or human type um anthropomorphic creatures actually um and the the the, uh sculptor is Jane Alexander and they're in plaster so they're not robust and she she allowed me to fondle the butcher boys which I did with alacrity, I must tell you, and I, I was unapologetic about the amount of time I was taking because they're extremely rich in 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 sort of extraordinary texture. Um, so, but that was a privilege because of an incident. You see the difference. See that 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 is not natural and unhesitant integration. That is exceptional, special stuff given to the odd person. Whereas your Athenian experience, the only problem with the Athenian experience, in my opinion, was that somebody didn't let you know in the very beginning. You had to be a cost, you know, you had to be told later on by a curator. It would have been wonderful had you walked in and they spotted you were blind. Imagine that. I think it is possible that someone tried to, and we just went, yes, 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 and <laughs> went on our way. As one does. I, <laughs> <laughs> we, we tend to be quite focused when we travel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay. it is possible. I do remember someone saying, excuse me, would you just sign in at the desk? <laughs> and, of course, there you've got the language. You've got the yes. language no, issue sure. as well. 
Sure. Um, although I will say that certainly when I've traveled overseas, I do find that many of the people that I meet are more fluent in English than I am in their language. So it's, yeah, but that, that, that could have been, so could have been organized. And I, so, yeah. so I found, you know, so I mean, as much as I, I mean, I spent all my life just well, dying to see the glorious museum life of Europe. And I haven't traveled that much. I've literally only been to Europe once and to England once um, in, in the last six years. And I, I, you know, I grew tired of endless audio description of glass cased things that I would love <laughs> to have touched. And so I, I came up with my own, um, my own uh, device to, um, to, to deal with what I wanted to, uh, to try and at least appease my thirst for historical knowledge um, or appreciation, if not knowledge, which was, I, I actually paid less attention going to museums and more attention going to churches. Um, especially in Europe, your churches are extremely old and you can get a great deal from, you know, you can get a sense of history from a church or a castle. So I remember going to Carnarvon Castle and going through the museum and being bored to tears because it was actually quite dull, to tell you the truth. Everything was behind uh, glass. And so I said to my friend, um, what, what do you, and there's another individual now, and I said, what do you say? We just run around the castle a bit. And he was very pleased to accommodate me. And we left the curators and we went on our own and we wandered around the castle, climbing spiral staircases that Edward I had climbed. Mm. You know, and I got way more out of that. Feeling the walls, you know, the extraordinary the architectural genius that created a castle. And then I did the same thing a year later or a year before with, you know, climbing church spires. I, I discovered that was really fun. The kids loved it. Um, and we'd go up these, I mean, they're not small. I mean, the Dom in Utrecht in Holland is 90 meters high. Um, that is exceptionally high to climb um, a very tight spiral staircase. Um, that's a lot of steps. That's a hell of a lot of steps. And they're uneven, and it was wonderful. When they saw me with the cane, they said, would you consider leaving the cane behind? Because that cane could trip other people and possibly yourself. It was very interesting. And I said, you know, I think I will. And I had my daughter and my son with me, so I wasn't worried. Um, and I'm quite agile and, you know, I'm tactile, so I can feel things. And I didn't need the cane, frankly. I, I, I left it with somebody at the bottom, and I climbed and climbed and climbed and climbed, and I loved it. I mean, I, you know, it's, it, I mean, the, the genius of building something that high um, 800 years ago is uh, it floors me. Um, so, yeah. so then, you know, I've, I discovered this, this is terrific. There's so much here that I can appreciate, and they don't mind me touching. And then you go into the nave of the church and there are catafalques um, which are the, the sort of images of the individual being buried beneath and many of them have been defaced during the religious wars and so that in itself tells a story so you know you know, my daughter who's a very good audio describer would chatter away next to me and read me anything that she could but I was while she was reading boy I was feeling and feeling and feeling and feeling and much happier and standing there impotent in front of a glass case. A place that you would love to visit is the medieval city of Carcassonne in Melancredoc in France. Ah. Carcassonne, <clears throat> Melancredoc, because you walk through the castle and they do have an audio description, um, one of these little audio guides, but everything that you are feeling you are able to touch. It's a very interactive experience. Oh, now, I'm see. unlike you, I have a very bad head for heights or possibly more a fear of depths, <laughs> but, which means that I am extremely anxious walking around up and down staircases where the stairs are uneven, where I can't feel, I can't see or feel anything except this cavernous space around me. And it's not just older buildings, it's also, you know, modern buildings. So 
Um, I am not someone who's going to go up high places. I did go up right to the top of the Eiffel Tower. Mm. And I did feel like it was constantly trying to pitch me over the side. <laughs> so it, so I'm not going to be the person. Yeah, I'm mm. not going to be the person going up the spires. But I think the point that you're making is that there are that sense of touch, using our other senses to be able to engage with a travel site, be it a historic site or not. It gives us a much better sense of the place, the stories that happened there, that shaped the place, yeah. Yeah. and just the whole experience of travel. But my, my, what, what I'm sitting with is the question, should we then, as travelers, particularly visually impaired travelers, should we be more, maybe outspoken is the wrong word, but more ready to ask? Yes. Yes. be allowed to do a little bit more than someone else. Oh, very good. That's, and and there you, are. you know, I think I know what you mean. Why I know why you were reticent about using outspoken. Um, perhaps we could find a better term than that. But assertive. <laughs> yes. No, I think assertive. Assertive would be better. Where you know, nicely assertive. You don't have to be aggressive, but nicely assertive. Where we we actually raise this thing more and more, um, and say, imagine if now. So take my catafalque experience. Um, Imagine if instead of my daughter being with me, just reading the odd plant, imagine if a very knowledgeable curator were to be alongside. Not, I'm not uh, uh, impugning my, my daughter's enthusiasm, but, but she's, not a, she's not a history scholar necessarily, and, and a curator would be terrific. You'd get even more out of it. Um, so a little closer to your experience, um, you know, I'm assuming in the Athenium Museum where you were able to feel those sculptures um, did somebody come along and chat it to you as well? They were talking to you at the same time. Yes, they did. Yeah. Yes, so no. yeah. I had a, I had a combination of someone giving me the freedom to touch and feel, and then she would ask me what I thought I was engaging with, and in some cases, um, on one of the freezers which displays the. Greek myth of Atalanta, okay. the woman huntress. She would say to me, "Okay, that's a boar," you know. Yeah. And 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 she gave me a few clues and said, "Okay, what are we seeing?" And I said, "It's Atalanta." And she goes, "Okay." And then she explained, you know, what the freeze, where it was found, and and that sort of thing. Terrific. So it was an interesting combination where she was engaging with my level of knowledge about the topics, and then. It became a conversation, which was so great. And I think because she had the historic knowledge, because that's her area of specialty, it does make a difference. No, completely. If you're given the ability to to engage with something and have an expert with you there as well. Yeah, absolutely. Now, and, and I mean this to, in, in juxtaposition to that. Sadly, what 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 we let's just speak about a blind. Blind tourism, in a sense, um, where it's with, where there is purpose-built facilities and things. Um, I'm because I'm a diversity practitioner by trade. I'm very conscious of of the the, the concept of natural and unhesitant um, uh, integration, right? And so, when you have a let's say in Kirstenbosch Gardens, uh, you know the most beautiful botanical gardens, I'm sure. Um, where they have a particular thing where they keep talking about a blind trail. And, and the only reason they've done that is because they've, they've, they've grabbed about 50 meters of pathway and attached braille labels to some, some you know, nice, and they're nice smelly herbs and things. So it's quite, it's quite sort of, uh, there's, an oral, there's an oral sense you can employ and there are braille labels. And then they, they very proudly say, you know, we have this, for the blind. Now, the gardens are, I don't know, 15 hectares or something. And what we're supposed to only hang around those that those, those 50 meters. And what if you don't read Braille? And so yeah. I think this is a, and I wondered if you've ever experienced that overseas. Have you experienced that or in other places where we have this thing about, you know, 
where you they have a, a so-called, I mean, it's patronizing in the extreme. But I was just wondering if you've noticed that somewhere before. <clears throat> I've had certain experiences. Um, I mean, but whether it's, yeah, that, that again, I think goes back to being systematic because it's there as part of the system. Uh, I just want to say about the, the Braille Trail at Kirstenbosch, they've done it in an interesting way where you have signboards for sighted people that can be read directly from the path mm. and then almost a, a V shape and the Braille is written on the back. That's right. And it's should be easy to touch. The problem is I was too short to be able to read all the Braille. I couldn't read the whole thing, which made it of only limited value. <laughs> because you had, to lean, you had to lean over, right? I had to lean over, oh, yes, yes, yes. And yes. I couldn't reach all the way to the bottom. Yes, yeah, I know, anyway, but, that, that's just but, a, a side but, point. I know, because you actually <laughs> literally almost got to step into the bed of the garden to to, to yeah. reach that thing. And and you and I, our Braille is probably similar, actually, which you can time us on a calendar. Um <laughs> I, well, I, remember, yes, right. I, I remember a funny story. I, I saw a lot better in those days. Well, not a lot better, but I saw a bit better. Um, and it was about 20 years ago, and I would find myself in the botanical gardens in Nelspreet. And they, in fact, had, had that, they'd done something that, that um, many other places never think of, which was they had got excellent, excellent signage, um, mm -hmm. which was a nice decent font in yellow and a black background so it was crystal clear and it was the clearest signage I've ever seen I couldn't really read much of it um, I had to get really close and I could actually feel it because it was slightly tactile as well and I remember um, it's not some of their sort of headline signage you know like entrance or exit or toilets were in much larger script, whereas the description of plants and things were in a smaller script. I couldn't read, but I'm sure others could read from a distance. And they did it deliberately so that the, the sign would be embedded deep in the in the actual garden itself, the physical flower bed, and you could, from the pathway, apparently, they could read it with ease. And I heard people talking about it. And so I found myself lost. I, I took myself there thinking I could probably wander around this place alone. Um, because the large signs, I could actually determine various things. Anyway, I found myself lost, and I saw the sign. Uh, and oh, there we go, there we go. And I'm sure that'll tell me where I'm going. <laughs> but it was deeply embedded in the flower bed, and I, I found myself picking my way gingerly through the flower bed so I could get <laughs> close to the sign, so I could put my nose up to the sign to see if I could discern what it said. <laughs> Oh my word! Yep, mm. that's that's kind of good idea. Maybe not great implementation. I think that often is something that we encounter as well. Just going back to the question you asked me about, have I experienced things where there is a part that is set aside for the visually impaired community, where the rest isn't? And I must have, but I, I think. I'm finding increasingly that the the playing field is being a lot leveled by technology. Um, I was walking around, oh, it was a building in Paris where Marie Antoinette was held and okay. from which she was taken and to be guillotined. And they have a lot of signs on the wall, not Braille signs, not for visually impaired people. Mm. But what I'm able to do now is I just take out my phone, mm. open up an app, take a picture, and it converts it into text that I can hear. And I think that does mean that if we are able to use the technology, it does make things a little more accessible. Of course, there's no way of knowing where those signs are which I think is also similar with Braille signage often. Mm, mm. Um, or tactile signs. You're absolutely right. You don't, yeah. If you can't see the thing, you can't find it to read it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and but it, I, I can't actually think of any other – there must be, but I just 
probably can't recall. Well, I, I haven't encountered um, I haven't encountered audio descriptive signs um, or labels in. Uh, I know uh, Joel Snyder was telling us that uh, he was very involved in a particular museum in Washington D.C. Um, where absolutely every exhibit was signed in such a way that you knew where the signs were. There was something of a family feel. So when you wandered around, even if you were blind, you, the guidelines or the guide ropes or whatever, or maybe the tactile paving would take you a much all. But the point is that you were able to discern logically where the sign was or the label was. And then uh, you pressed a button and then it spoke. Now, the problem with that, of course, is that it could disturb other people or there could be other people doing the same thing. But it is a solution. And as you say, with our phones, everybody has a phone. And um, there, are, there are numerous opportunities here for technological assistance in creating something special. Um, I mean, I... I was with with Joel being there at the, in the National Gallery, for instance. I mean, he stood in front of a large picture. To my shame, I can't remember the picture, but but he he took trouble. He took fifteen minutes to to talk me through that picture in beautiful detail. Um, it was it was lost because it was such a rich day, and there was just so much, which is why I don't have it. But what I've got is I've got a collection that Joel gave me of of a few examples of how one can apply audio description to exhibits. Um, and so there are some very well-known pieces. Um, you know, uh, Titian's famous thing, Venus and Adonis, you recall the mm. painting, I'm sure. And, you know, I've got the, I've got an audio description and an MP3 link on that. And that came from that museum, or not that museum, but that came from a museum. And imagine how wonderful it would be if you would look through the catalogue of a of a museum as a blind person in advance on the website, and to familiarise yourself with exhibits, with and then so you know it, you wouldn't. And, and this takes us to virtual virtual touring, doesn't it? It does indeed, because I think that is an area that is still very much in its infancy. And I think Corona has probably kickstarted it though in terms of an opportunity. Um, you know, so okay, so we're not going to be able to feel the stuff, obviously, but there's no reason we shouldn't get the richest description of some of the more beautiful pieces. Absolutely, and I, I know there are a number of museums that are either introducing this kind of audio descriptive engagement with art pieces and I think it's a really great step forward I mean obviously we need to look at how we can make people more aware of that across the world yeah. um, to bring it so that it becomes part of the system of every museum every art gallery um, I, I will say walking around the one of the the big it wasn't the Louvre it was one of the other big art galleries in in Paris yeah. was possibly my least favorite um to travel experience ever because you're just walking past picture after picture after oh, picture and, and sure I could have said to Craig just slow down and tell me about the pictures but I was at the end of a very long day of walking Paris yeah, yeah and to be yeah. quite honest I wasn't actually in the mood for it but well you know no, <laughs> so, I do I do I do so it, how it, how do we make it that sort of thing more more part of the, the the travel experience from the tourist service providers side yeah yeah and I, I think i think what needs to happen is that there needs to be more openness and you know rather than hide their light under a bushel and and only when you inquire do they suddenly announce oh look we've got this thing actually yeah for the blind Imagine if you use that as an attraction. We have the most blind-friendly museum experience you'll ever. Now you put that out there, and mm. now that's a, it's a courageous thing to do, and the chances are it would be terrific. You know, you can argue about whether it is absolutely the best, and only competition will tell. Um, but at the moment, certainly in this country, and I, I'm very sad about our country because we 
we have very little appreciation for this potential market. Um, the, the, the few times I know the National Gallery used to phone up the blind school in Aslone and phone up the, you know, the Aslone School for the Blind um, and phone up Worcester School for the Pioneer School for the Blind and say, right, guys, we have an exhibition for you. And that's the operative word, for you. And so they would duly rock up in their buses and then they would be taken past everything that they could damage in inverted commas to a little room at the back where they've got a few exhibits that couldn't possibly be hurt by anybody and they let the kids rip and they talk to them a little bit and then they chase the kids away. And that was their idea of inclusion and that's not inclusion at all. Yes. So... I, I find I know this sometimes sounds negative, but this is this is terrific opportunity, you know, to play and to and to get clever with this stuff. And at the end of the day, it's a hard job because what what we're dealing with here is society's general lack of understanding of of disability um, in general and requirements specifically, um, because there has been so little engagement in the issue. Um, it's been very much an arm's length relationship, if at all. And you're asking for to be a lot closer to embrace some of the some of the more detailed nuances that 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 uh, that that we take for granted, and they don't. Eh? And so, yeah. <clears throat> I was going to just uh, maybe put the question out there. I mean, is it our responsibility as individual people? to start these conversations with museums, with art galleries, with tourist experiences, or is it the job of advocacy groups? Yeah. Um, who, whose job is it? Where should it start? Good question. Good question. I think it actually does start with us. You know, it's a, it's a little like the Black Lives Matter, I suppose. You know, if, if every person with a disability took responsibility for being assertive without being ugly, without, you don't have to ever be rude. I've, I've confronted many uh, uh, obstacles in the form of obstinate um, people uh, preventing me from doing things. And I've very rarely resorted to anger and rudeness. You can, you can, you can be assertive without necessarily being ugly. But if everybody okay. were to be friendly, assertive, about and 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 just informed to um you would and the trouble is that certainly in our country where we have less opportunity to be exposed to this kind of rich cultural opportunity such as museums and galleries and things because let's face it we have a very poor public transport system particularly at the moment and you know there's a there's a there's a money issue you know in places where you need to pay for instance so what, 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 what should happen more is that the organizations, in my opinion, who represent the blind um, should inspire their constituency um, to, to, to go to more places and be exposed to more things. And then similarly, using an advocacy handle to inspire those places to be a lot more amenable and work with them. This won't happen. This cannot happen on its own. It won't just suddenly happen. It can only happen with a great deal of pressure and help um, and more and more exposure. The more blind people that are exposed to places, the more those places will respond. But if only one or two blindies blunder in, they're not exposed properly, and so they don't know how to respond. True statement. It doesn't necessarily answer all the questions, but I think we've explored a number of different areas of, of the reality of traveling as a visually impaired person. So, yeah. Well, no, that's good. I think these conversations are important. You know, it, it, they, they can't all be sweetness and light. One has to, you can't, you know, can't always expect, you know, good good news stories, because good news stories are terrific and they're important, they're really important. But if you want to make change, you need to have a trajectory from one thing to another. And if you don't know what that first thing is, then you can't really achieve the second. 
And so it's important that we highlight where the faults lie in order to fix them. Um, so, you know, I'm excited by these kinds of conversations because the more times we have them, the more things will change. Absolutely. And I think the good news stories are important to get out because it does raise a few more people's perceptions every yeah. single time. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Absolutely. Good. Jeremy, thank you so much. Yes, I it was it's a great pleasure. To chat to you. Yeah, thank you. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Jeremy Opperman. It's quite likely that I'll invite him back onto the podcast because I'd love to dig into the topic of travel with a guide dog, a topic that he has significant experience. Moving on to this week's travel quote. In the very first episode of the podcast, I mentioned that when I was about six years old, I had a goal of going everywhere in the world and meeting everyone. And I think today's quotation is almost designed just for me. Melody Truong said, I'm in love with cities I've never been to and people I've never met. Thanks so much for joining us on the episode today. And we'll see you next time. That's it from us for this time. You can find Accessible South Africa on the web at accessiblesouthafrica.co.za, on Facebook and Instagram at Accessible South Africa, and on Twitter at AccessibleSA. You can also email us at podcast at accessiblesouthafrica.co.za. Editing by Craig Strachan using Hinderberg software. Our theme music is by Lu Chil Chow, based on a motive by Lloyd Strachan. Credits read by Musa Izulu. Thank you for joining us on a different way of traveling. We'll see you next time. Until then, happy travels.